Hello, fellow lovers of all things green. I'm Mary Stone, and welcome to Garden Dilemmas, Delights, and Discoveries. It's not only about gardens, it's about nature's inspirations, about grasping the glories of the world around us, gathering what we learn from Mother Nature, and carrying these lessons into our garden of life. So let's jump in in the spirit of learning from each other. We have lots to talk about. Hello, it's Mary Stone on a very stormy night. This is a second hurricane remnant we have experienced within a two-week period. I think we already have six inches of rain, and my cement pond is overflowing. And I just wanted to sit here a minute and contemplate the significance of this storm and the irony of just watering my indoor plants that are sitting around me on the screened porch, not getting any of the nature's rain dump. But this is too much rain. The vegetable garden has gone to bouchard. <laughs> nice way of saying a lot of the foliage has um, rotted since the last storm event. So this is Hurricane Ida. And I think the previous one was Hurricane Henri, or Henry, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but my oh my, we have no control over these things, do we? But I'm going to take comfort in thinking that after the storm is only when there can be a rainbow. Something to think about. Anyway, I can't wait to come back to you tomorrow. I think this storm is going to end about 11 and I already have a story to share about some big heat. Big heat. Hot peppers, that is. Hope I piqued your interest. I'm back on the screen porch and it's not the day after as I had hoped. We had had a big cleanup to do. I guess many of our neighbors as well. So there had been chainsaws going as trees had to be cut down and um, we personally didn't sustain a power outage but did have some issues with our internet but nothing terrible and I hope all of you in the storm zones are faring well and are recovering from a difficult time for sure. Anyway I do hear some more work going on behind the scenes. I hope uh, the sound of the chainsaw or blower, I'm not sure what it is, doesn't bother you. But I mentioned that I wanted to talk about some big heat. And this is a fun story because it stems from my high school sweetheart. I called him Rusty then. He goes by Russ now. And um, he and I dated when I was a senior in high school. And uh, when I went off to New York City, he stayed where he lived in Pennsylvania, and our lives grew apart, but uh, certainly we've been friends all these years, and it was so fun to get a text exchange with him early in the season as he and his wife, Sarah, began their process of growing their hot peppers from seed. So let me share the column, because this is, again, I am not a hot pepper person, so this to me was new, 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 and kind of frightening. Let me see what you think. I interviewed my lifelong friend Russ and his wife Sarah from Oakland, Tennessee about their adventure growing hot peppers in pots and turning them into jelly. I watched them grow up, <laughs> remotely that is, when they decided to start their hot pepper seeds indoors. Russ asked about grow lights to buy, which became a column topic. And yes, that is a column topic you can look at on Garden Dilemmas 
facebook.com about plant grow lights 101 and how the world of grow lights has turned to LEDs which I had not known much about until Russ asked the question. Your advice helped greatly. The Carolina Reapers, Chocolate Habaneros, and Bueno Malaya have taken off, as well as the Sugar Rush Peach. And this is where it gets me, this cracks me up. And the Death Spirals, Apocalypse Scorpions, and Trinidad Scorpions all started peeking out this week. Sounds like a sadistic bunch. But Sarah's making great products from them, Russ Moore wrote. I have a subtitle in the column, Growing Crazy Hot Peppers Turns Into Jelly, which is also the name of the column. To my delight, three colorful hot pepper jellies arrived last week. Sarah is an artisan, finding regular jelly recipes, modifying them, and figuring out what hot pepper went best with the fruits. She describes each jelly and the peppers used along with the SHU heat rating for each, a term new to me, and suggested ways to enjoy them, such as with cream cheese and crackers, as a marinade, and that sort of thing. SHU stands for Scoville heat units, based on the amount of capsaicin in the pepper. That's the component that makes them hot. Russ explains a standard jalapeno you get on nachos is 8,000 Scoville heat units. And everything we're growing this year is 400,000 and up. Holy moly. No wonder I had some fear about trying these jellies. I'm just saying. Sarah's pineapple mango ghost pepper jelly made with ghost peppers, one of the hottest in the world, has an SHU of 1 million. No kidding. She made strawberry kiwi death spiral pepper with a heat rating of 1.25 to 1.3 million. Oh my goodness and a new creation, Orange Cranberry Chocolate Habanero, with a heat rating of 900,000. So I'm supposed to try these jellies? I mean, seriously. So my nervousness was eased when Sarah wrote the disclaimer, none of these jellies are this hot because we've removed the seeds and demembraned them too. The membrane is the rib with the attached seeds. Plus, Sarah only uses one pepper per batch of five to seven jars. I always thought the seeds is what made hot peppers hot, but it's not. It's actually the membrane around the seeds, or the rib, they call it. So there you go. After sampling them, Sarah's description was dead on. <laughs> dead on, I have to say that because, you know, the names are so deathly sounding. They have the flavor of fruit with a little bit of zip, Sarah wrote. Most people will never believe they're eating some of the hottest peppers in the world. She prides herself in educating people, including me, to not, you know, take it against the pepper that they're so bloody hot. <laughs> I made scallop kebabs using the pineapple mango ghost pepper as a marinade. They were restaurant quality delicious and just hot enough. And they really were. They were just so good. I do have to tell you, though, before I had the phone interview with Russ and Sarah, it was in the morning, I mean breakfast time, that I was sampling the jellies, and that was after, you know, just taking on the courage. <laughs> and they weren't bad. I just put them on a little cracker, and uh, my goodness, I kind of am getting hooked. Another subtitle was From Starter Pots to Grow Bags. Grow bags are becoming popular as the fabric, often made of recycled water bottles, allows roots to breathe, offers better drainage, and is lighter to move around. Russ and Sarah discovered grow bags work better than the regular containers producing bigger plants with higher yields. They layer a potting mix with a layer of earthworm castings, then bone meal, 
and top it off with more potting mix. You can see the difference, they said. We had many laughs about the live and learned events and side effects of growing unimaginable heat. I'm going to share a few of them here. Don't use pots you use for cooking. It will penetrate them forever. Russ decided to dehydrate the peppers using Sarah's cookie sheets. These are really expensive ones, by the way, I found out. Sarah was out one day, and me being impatient the way I am, I'm not going to sit here and tie all these millions of peppers up and hang them anyplace. So I got Sarah's good Wilton oh, no. sheets. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. Spread everything out in them. I put them in the oven. I put the oven like 150 degrees, just enough to, you know, get mm-hmm. it going. Mm-hmm. Sarah came home two hours later. You could not walk in the kitchen. Really? Oh, uh, it was like somebody had set off a tear gas bomb in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, God. It was awful. And, oh, I caught the you-know-what about that. So, cleaned her pans up and everything else. And two weeks later, she made chocolate chip cookies on those pans. And they were absolutely the hottest chocolate chip cookies I've eaten in my entire life. <laughs> Then they bought a dehydrator and used it in the basement with the bathroom fan running. You know, they had a bathroom in the basement, so I figured, yeah, put the fan on. That should work. So I took it downstairs, and I figured we got a little washer-dryer area and a small bathroom down there. I figured, well, I'll put it on top of the dryer, and I'll turn the exhaust fan on in the bathroom down there, and oh. it'll go away. Not. Not. Upstairs, 2 o'clock in the morning, we're laying in bed gagging and choking. <laughs> well, that didn't work. <laughs> so when you're actually cutting up the stuff, are you getting teary-eyed and, like, and fumigated <laughs> with heat? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> we're oh. kind of getting used to it a little bit. <laughs> if that's such a thing. Yeah. Mm. But I would tell anybody, if you ever, ever, ever get in cut into one of these peppers to wear gloves... And wear safety glasses. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yes. So, These peppers are basically almost considered military-grade peppers. There is actually military-grade peppers. I guess there would be pepper spray, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Because yeah. it's like what goes into their tear gas. Oh, my. <laughs> I don't know. This is such a crazy adventure, but I, I do want to tell you, those jellies were delicious. It's just such an odd thing to me that they have this hobby but hey who am I to judge in fact I guess many people do as there are pepper pages I learned about where they learn from others how to grow these hot suckers we went on to share stories of our rescue pups Maddie their Dalmatian short for Maddie Dale is named after the Maddie Dale on a fire engine this is the first I've heard of this also known as a cross-lay or speed-lay, it organizes fire hose for quick deployment. Both Russ and Sarah have served important roles in fire departments, which is how they met. Sarah also played a vital role in the Oak Ridge, Tennessee Rescue Facility for nine years, and it's now a no-kill shelter as a result of all the strategies she came up with. In addition, they can offer monthly free spay and neuter programs now, so it Again, it went from a kill shelter to a no-kill shelter, and it is doing some wonderful things. Maybe when they retire, they will make the Hot Pepper Creations a business. Perhaps the name could be The Heat of Hope, with a portion of the proceeds dedicated to saving animals. Garden Dilemmas, 
askmarystone.com. So I have to say on the Garden Dilemmas website, I have a photo of the card that uh, Sarah Hand wrote, and the cover of the card says, Hope Anchors the Soul. So I thought again, Heat of Hope would make a nice business name, don't you think? Thank you for sharing your story, Sarah and Russ, and thank you for your love of dogs. So that was the story, and uh, anyway, I... I just, again, find life is so interesting, how it interweaves people together, some for lifetimes, some for just a short period of time, but uh, always a blessing to have good friends. So I was listening to the raw recordings and realized the cicada sounds are pretty loud still. I thought they were getting better. I don't know. I guess I'm getting used to it. Um, and I've enjoyed hearing from so many of you about your experience in the Brood X invasion, or I should say lack of experience. Um, and I wrote a column about it, which I'm not going to read specifically, you know, the whole thing, but I did want to just mention that, um, yeah, there was an invasion in parts of New Jersey, actually not far from me, in Princeton, New Jersey, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from here. I actually work in the area with a colleague of mine named Rick McCoy, and uh, apparently, in fact, he had shown me video and pictorial evidence. Boy, <laughs> did they emerge down there. So again, I'm not going to read the column. You can visit it on the Garden Dilemmas website and see some pretty cool photos. The title of the column is Brood X Cicada 2021 Recap. So I'm back on the screen porch, and I have to say, I tried very hard to find a break between the Cicada chorus and the Katie Did chorus, and I couldn't find one. So there is today a break in the sounds of the critters, but now we have the wind, <laughs> the refreshing September wind, which is really delightful after such a hot and humid summer. <sighs> yeah, changes, changes, changes in the season bring such joy and new beginnings. It was so nice to see kids getting on a bus instead of being taught at home. I hope that's happening in your neighborhood as well. So as promised, I'm going to share a story about worm composting, which can be a little icky, but it also can be really rewarding, turning those kitchen scraps into something incredibly nutritious for your garden. And it starts like this. We spoke about a hot pepper crop grown in containers last week. Russ and Sarah used worm castings added to their potting mix. What are worm castings and where do you get them? Asked Joe from Hope, New Jersey. I'll cut to the chase, Joe. Worm castings are worm poop. Or worm manure, if you want to be more proper. And you can make your very own with worm composting. A bit of warning, you may consider reading this when you're not having breakfast. Worm castings increase soil's ability to hold water and nutrients, which promotes plant growth. The ratio most suggest is typically one part castings to four part soil or potting mix or you can spread a quarter or a half an inch layer on top of your garden beds. There are worm composting farms you can buy that tout simplicity and cleanliness. They're kind of pricey though, ranging from 80 to 180 bucks. So back to the DIY system you can build at home for far less. Also called vermicomposting, worm composting takes little space and there's no odor if done correctly. Any area that stays between 40 and 80 degrees and is reasonably dark and dry works. So your basement, kitchen pantry, or even your bedroom will do. And I am not kidding, I have somebody, a client of mine, 
who has a worm composting bin in their bedroom. I am not kidding, but they're doing it right. They are doing it right. Choose a container based on the amount of your kitchen waste. You can compost fruit and vegetable scraps, crushed eggshells, tea bags, and coffee grounds. Skip the citrus, meats, dairy products, oily foods, and grains because of the smells, flies, and let's just say rodent problems. <laughs> Worms need about one square foot of surface area to digest each pound of waste per week. So a two by two foot worm bin can handle about four pounds of scraps a week. Whether you use a plastic tub or recycled wooden drawer, it should be eight to 12 inches high with several holes in the bottom for drainage. Raise the bin on bricks or wooden blocks and place a tray underneath to capture the moisture that serves as liquid fertilizer. Fill three quarters of the bin with shredded newspaper, chopped dry leaves, sawdust, leaf mold, or a combination thereof, which is even better, and moisten to the texture of a wrung out sponge. Add a couple of handfuls of sand or soil to provide the necessary grit for the worm's digestion. You know, worms need roughage too. <laughs> then add your food scraps, but always under the bedding material to keep the fragrance and flies at bay. And that's where people make mistakes because they tend to put it on top of the bedding because it is kind of a little, you know, wiggly when you move the bedding aside to put more scraps in. You're going to see your, your worms, but they're, they're kind of cute, aren't they? Well, maybe. I'm guessing. A little bit. At least to each other. <laughs> Next come the worms. Specifically red wigglers. Asiniae foitida. How does that for the scientific pronunciation? Not too bad, not too bad. They are the most ferocious eaters of the earthworm family, consuming half their weight in food each day. Imagine that, half your weight in food each day. You can buy them through garden supply catalogs. Experts recommend starting with two pounds of worms for a two or three person household. Place a dark plastic sheet or burlap loosely on the bedding to conserve moisture and provide darkness for your worms. It takes about 60 days for worms to turn kitchen scraps into castings, at which time you need to separate them from the finished compost, otherwise they'll die. The process is called harvesting, and this is where it can be a little, let's just say, nauseating to some, which would be me. The quickest way is to move the finished compost to one side of the bin, then place new bedding and food waste on the other side. The worms will gradually move over to the new site, making removing the finished compost easy to do. Or, you can harvest all the compost by dumping the contents and separating the worms in tiny worm cocoons manually. Are you queasy yet? <laughs> then mix a little of the finished compost with new bedding and scraps before returning your worms. Worms can crawl out if conditions aren't right, say if the bedding is too wet or acidic, but don't worry, they won't go far before they wither up. But you may want to rethink the bedroom for your bin. <laughs> to prevent escaping, improve drainage by increasing holes or adding a little garden lime. Sure, you can buy worm castings, but be sure it's from a reliable source and is 100% earthworm manure, I'm being so proper, with no fillers. I've heard of purchased castings filled with unwanted insect larvae wreaking havoc on people's gardens, so you really have to make sure. Besides, when you're buying worm poop, you'll miss out on all the fun. Garden Dilemmas? AskMaryStone.com At the bottom of the worm castings column on the Garden Dilemmas website, I write a little snippet. I first heard of worm composting when a client had a setup in her garage. 
Nancy of Frieden, New Jersey, had one of the multi-tiered system you can buy that touts the worms move to the next tray once they finish composting a layer. So you don't have to separate the worms from the castings. And there's a lower tray with a spigot where the liquid collects for easy access to making compost tea. But that's where Nancy's operation overflowed. The next time there, Nancy's endeavor was gone. Too messy, she said. It just goes to show, sometimes DIY is better. <laughs> I'm not sure which is better. I think both are great if you manage it properly, but what a great project. I think I'm going to take it on this winter because I can use my kitchen scraps without putting them in my compost where I've learned by mistake. When you do that, you attract bear and raccoons, which are lovely to see, but not when they live there. Just saying. Well, I've sure enjoyed our chat. I hope you have too. And again, I appreciate all of you who wrote in about their cicadas. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and the column if you haven't done so already so that it magically appears in your feed and your email and share it with your friends that you think may enjoy it as well so more can join our community of learning and growing in the garden of life. Thanks so much. You can follow Garden Dilemmas on Facebook or online at GardenDilemmas.com and on Instagram at hashtag Mary Elaine Stone. Garden Dilemmas, Delights, and Discoveries is produced by Alex Bartling. Thanks for coming by. I look forward to chatting again from my screen porch. And always remember to embrace the unexpected in this garden of life. Have a great day.